this one event is of primary importance to you and I as a Christian. It is the watershed event of all of human history. The resurrection is the centerpiece of Christianity. It is the very foundation of Christianity. It is the one event upon which all of Christianity either stands or falls. It is of primary importance. If you disprove the resurrection, you disprove Christianity. Christianity does not have a leg to stand on. And down throughout history, various people have tried to disprove the resurrection. This past couple of weeks, as I've been reading and preparing and thinking and praying about this weekend and bringing this message, I reread two books. The first book is written by a man by the name of Frank Morrison. The title is, Who Moved the Stone? And Frank Morrison was an Englishman, a lawyer, who was antagonistic to the gospel. And he realized that if you could disprove the resurrection, then you could debunk Christianity. And so he set about, and interestingly enough, he set aside his intellectual bias against Christianity. And he began to examine all the information and all the facts that he could find. And as he began to do so, he began to see something very interesting. The resurrection did happen. And with his legal mind, he couldn't deny it. And hence, he wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone, as a defense for the resurrection, and he got saved. <laughs> the second book I read was more contemporary, Josh McDowell evidence that demands a verdict. He also sought to disprove the resurrection. And as he examined the data, as he read the accounts, he came to the conclusion that the resurrection did occur, that Jesus is alive, that he, said he is who he says he is. And Josh McDowell also got saved and has become one of our greatest present-day apologists for the gospel that we have in the church. Powerful. And so if you disprove the resurrection, you disprove Christianity. But the resurrection stands. We believe that. We're going to look at some of the proofs this morning. Now Jesus foretold his own death and his resurrection frequently and in great detail. There are only over 20 references in the Gospels alone where Jesus pronounces, talks about his death, and then in three days he would rise. Great frequency and in much detail. I want to read to you just two of these references. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 21, Matthew writes this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed 
and on the third day be raised to life. In chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 17, Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Put yourself in the place of someone who would make that claim. If you had hoped that those people who were following you would continue to follow you, you would have to be awfully sure that you were going to come back after three days. Otherwise, that claim would be the claim of a lunatic, wouldn't it? You couldn't possibly expect people to follow you. Put yourself in the place of those who heard the claim. They were bewildered over and over. The writers speak of the disciples not understanding what Jesus was saying. Couldn't comprehend it. He was going to die and then in three days be raised up. Is that the claim of a liar or a lunatic or the Lord? Jesus understood. He knew. He was absolutely confident he'd be coming back. He could make that claim boldly. Boldly. You and I would say, well, I, you know, if it doesn't rain, I don't know. I'm not too sure. We'll have it, but... Well, there's no buts about it with Jesus. He knew he was coming back. He made that claim over and over and over. And since his claim came to pass, then it would seem to me that everything else he said must also be true. Do you see how significant the resurrection is to the Christian faith? He said he'd come back, and he did. And he did it in three days, just like he said he would. Then it would seem to me that everything else he said is true also. We have a foundation, a solid foundation to believe in Jesus and believe in what he said. Without the resurrection, we have no guarantee that anything he said is true, is dependable. Do you see the primary importance of the resurrection? You can trust the Lord. You can trust in Jesus. Now all but four of the major world religions, all but four of them, are based on philosophical propositions only. There are four major world religions that are not based on philosophical systems or propositions, but based on personalities. Judaism, based on the personality of its founder Abraham, Father Abraham. Buddhism, based on its founder Buddha. Islam, Mohammedism, based on Mohammed. And the fourth is Christianity, based on Christ. Only Christianity claims an empty tomb. For the other three, their founders are still in the grave. You have no basis on which to claim 
No person has any basis in which to claim that those other world systems and religions have the truth. They have nothing to back them up, nothing of substance, nothing you can point to in history that says, I point to this event. When people say to me, how do you know Christianity is true? I say, because Jesus was raised from the dead. Because he backed up his claims. Beloved, there is only one truth. All roads don't lead to God. Only Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. He had the authority to say it. There are millions and millions and millions of Mohammedans, Buddhists, and Jews today around the world who will testify that the founders of their faith are still in the tomb. They did not rise, but Jesus did. And you and I have that great substantial truth to stand upon. Which of all these faiths then would hold the greatest promise of the truth for a person who truly is seeking the truth? Which of all of them? If you surveyed them all, doesn't Christianity stand out from all the rest? You have to, you have to look and you say, Jesus rose. I have to take his claim seriously. And when you read his words in the New Testament, when you read the gospel accounts, and you read what he says, you're astounded. He says revolutionary things. Powerful things. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, narrow is the way to life and few who find it. But broad is the way to destruction and many who are on that way. Beloved, Christianity has the rock of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to stand on. Hallelujah. When you're, whenever you're wondering, whenever you're sitting there scratching your head, whenever you're musing and thinking, say, well, you know, I, I sure hope I'm in the right place. I sure hope I'm, you know, all these other people, all these other religions. I mean, is everybody wrong? How can I know for sure? There's one way. Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the only, only way you can know for sure. Well, what if he didn't rise? What if he didn't rise? What then? What effects? What implications of that? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from verses 13 through 19. He tells us five things in that passage. I want you to read it with me. Verse 14, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those 
also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Paul tells us five things. Five things are true if Christ has not been raised. The first one, all the preaching we do is useless. All the testifying, all the sharing is absolutely useless if Christ has not been raised. Why? Because we have nothing to stand on. There's no basis for our preaching if Christ was still in the tomb, if he wasn't resurrected. The second point is he tells us that our faith is meaningless and ineffective. There's no meaning to what we say. There's no meaning to what we believe if Christ is still in the tomb. It's a hollow, empty faith. And it's a faith that's ineffective. Beloved, our faith, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he comes into your life and he changes you. He changes you. It's not a matter of your willpower. It's not a matter of having a positive mental attitude. It's a matter of putting your faith in the risen Lord who changes you and gives you a brand new life. And if Jesus is still in the tomb, that's not going to happen. Your faith is empty. It's ineffective. The third point, he says, is that we are still in our sins. We're still guilty if Jesus has not been raised. How significant, how important is forgiveness? Is it a good thing? We know about it in our earthly temporal relationships, don't we? We know how important and how valuable, how meaningful forgiveness is. When we violate a relationship or when some trust has been violated in a relationship with a loved one, a friend, a, a brother, a sister, a close, close person. There's distance in that relationship. It's awkward. It's hard. And the only way we can resolve that distance, the only way we can remove it is by entering into a relationship with that person that says, would you please forgive me? And when forgiveness is asked for and granted, and when it is received, oh, how wonderful. How wonderful. How satisfying. We have a healed relationship. But if Christ has not been raised... We're still in our sins. We're still guilty before God. Each one of us have violated his law. We can't ignore that. Can't just sweep it under the carpet. Can't pretend like it didn't, didn't happen. Can't pretend like we're not guilty. We carry it around with us. And the guilt from sin eats us up. Creates all sorts of problems in us how we need to be forgiven. And if Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins, and there is no forgiveness. What a tragedy that would be. The fourth point, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then all the dead Christians aren't just sleeping. They're lost, and they're lost forever. And when you and I die, if Christ has not been raised, we'll be lost forever. No hope ever. Nothing to look forward to. Endless eternities of black darkness and emptiness, despair, 
agony like you've never experienced if Christ has not been raised. And then the last point he says, if Christ has not been raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied if we're just trusting in him for this life only. We're wasting our time. We're wasting our energy. You should have stayed in bed this morning if Christ has not been raised. This is a futile effort. We're just kidding each other. We're most to be pitied. The world looks upon us if Christ has not truly been raised and says, oh my, those silly people going through all they go through and it doesn't make one bit of difference. But you see, we believe that Jesus did rise. The Bible teaches it clearly. There is ample evidence to support the resurrection. There is much data, many, many facts, many pieces of evidence. I want to give you seven pieces of evidence that are irrefutable. Seven pieces of evidence that will stand up in a court of law. If you were to take the resurrection of Jesus Christ into court to test it, and you were to present this evidence, it would stand up and the judge and the jury would have to say, Jesus is raised from the dead. Think with me now. The first piece of evidence, the broken seal on the tomb. You think, well, what is, what's that big deal? broken seal. It's a big deal. You have to understand that the Roman seal, which was on the tomb, that the Jewish leadership asked for, along with a Roman guard, to guard the tomb because they were afraid that the disciples would somehow come along and steal the body. Jesus had predicted had foretold that he would rise in three days, and the Jewish leadership were uh, terribly afraid that the disciples would come and steal the body, and then they would say, see, Jesus rose. And so they went to Pilate, and they said, we want a guard for the tomb. We want Roman soldiers to guard the tomb, and we want you to put a Roman seal on the tomb. Matthew chapter 27, verse 66 And the, the Roman seal was the stamp of Roman authority and power. No one would dare break the Roman seal. It was inviolate. The punishment, the penalty for breaking a seal of Rome was death. They would crucify you upside down. If you illegally broke the seal of Rome, they would send out the equivalent of the CIA, the FBI, the KGB. <laughs> they would find you, and they would punish you quickly. They would crucify you upside down. Can you see how significant the Roman seal was? People did not break the seal of Rome. Only a power greater than Rome could break that seal. Amen. So we have a broken seal. 
The second piece of evidence is the empty tomb itself. This is really exhibit A, if you will. The empty tomb. Nobody could claim that the tomb was not empty. Indeed, the religious leadership in Jerusalem, as well as the Roman soldiers, would testify to that fact. The tomb was empty. Jesus was not there. When the disciples preached on the day of Pentecost, they didn't leave Jerusalem and run up to Rome. They didn't go off to Antioch or some other major city. They stayed right in Jerusalem and they preached right there. And they told everybody that the tomb was empty. And they said, if you don't believe us, just go two blocks down, make a left and make another right, and you'll find you can go in and look for yourself. He is not there. They had the empty tomb right there in Jerusalem to testify to the fact that Jesus was risen. You have a broken seal. You have an empty tomb. The third fact is that the stone was moved. This is very interesting. In Mark chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, you have the women coming the first day of the week to anoint Jesus' body. Now, when Jesus was buried, he was buried quickly. He was wrapped quickly. There were spices spread quickly. Uh, but he wasn't anointed as he should have been. And so the women were coming to anoint the body. And on the way to the tomb, Mark records their comments. And they were concerned. They, would say, they were saying, who is going to move the stone? Because it was a very large stone. In fact, Mark says in verse 4 that the stone was very large. Now, some authors, some commentators think that the stone weighed upwards of two tons. It's a large stone. Indeed, you could see how people would be concerned who's going to move the stone. But there's some other things about the stone that I think you need to hear about. And they're not easily discerned as you read the English translations, but as you study the passages in Mark, in Luke, and John, you begin to see something a little differently. The words that they use in the Greek text indicate something significant about that stone. Let me tell you what Mark says. As Mark describes the stone being moved away, the word he uses indicates that the stone was rolled up an incline, up a slope. It wasn't just nudged off to the side. It was rolled up a slope. That's what Mark says. Luke says this. The words he uses implies that the, to, that the stone was moved away from the entire tomb. So up a slope, away from the entire tomb. But listen to what John says. John has the most astounding statement to make. The words John uses implies this, that the stone was moved to such a position that it looked like someone had picked it up and carried it away. That's pretty astounding. Now you go, you go and look at the tomb, and you examine it, and certainly it's empty. The seal has been broken, but the stone is not just nudged away. The stone is moved away such that it looks like someone picked it up and carried it away. 
Now, do you suppose, consider this. I want you to imagine, if you will, the disciples. Here's a Roman guard. Hardened soldiers assigned to guard that tomb. The disciples have already fled in fear and left Jesus alone to be crucified. Are the disciples going to come back? And let's assume that the, the, that the Roman guard has fallen asleep. Can you imagine the disciples tiptoeing around the guards so as not to wake them up? <laughs> Approaching the stone, grunting and groaning to move it up a slope, away from the tomb to such a position that it looks like it was picked up and carried away and not wake up the Roman guards? I think not. The fourth piece of evidence is the Roman guards themselves. These were men who were men of war. The Roman army was known for discipline. They were known for their viciousness in battle. These men were not pussycats. These men were not easily intimidated. And they certainly would fulfill their responsibility. <coughs> Desertion or dereliction of duty that was punished by death. And here's how they punished a Roman soldier. If he deserted his post, if he was derelict of his duty, they stripped him of his tunic, of all of his garments, they laid him at his feet, and then they lit them on fire, and he stood there while he burned up. Now, you're a Roman soldier, and you understand what happens if you desert your post. Are you going to desert your post easily? Absolutely not. No. But the Roman guards did. The account has it. Matthew records that the, guard, that the guards fled. In fact, in chapter 28, verse 4, when an angel of the Lord came down and rolled the stone away and sat upon it, Matthew records that the guards were so afraid of the angel that they shook and became like dead men. And then they fled. Hardly at the cause of the disciples coming and stealing the body. Can you imagine this? Here are these hardy Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. The angel comes down, rolls the stone away, sits on it. He shines like the sun. We don't know who the angel was. Let's say Gabriel. The soldiers say, who are you? Can you picture that? And the angel says, I'm Gabriel. Who are you? Think about that. The guards. The guards went off to Pilate, not to Pilate, they went to the chief priests to report. If they went to Pilate, they would for sure be punished for leaving their post without permission. And so they went to the chief priest and they said, you're not going to believe what we just saw. And the chief priest say, let's cover it up. That's the beginning of Easter gate. You have Eastergate right there. 
and a whole plot to cover up the resurrection. They didn't deny that the tomb was empty. Their worst fears had come true. Jesus was gone. The body wasn't there. And they said, we're going to give you some money. If anybody says anything, you tell them the disciples that came and stole the body. And we'll cover you with Pilate. The disciples came and stole the body? The fifth point of evidence. The empty grave clothes. The empty grave clothes. In John chapter 20, we have recorded Peter and John running to the tomb after the report of the women. They go running to the tomb. John just kind of peeks in, but old Peter, he just rushes right in. And then John follows him in. And they see the grave clothes all laid there, right on the ledge where Jesus' body had lain. Now, when they wrapped a body and they prepared a body for burial, they used long strips of linen cloth, about a foot wide, each strip. And they would very carefully and very tightly wrap the body. And between each roll of the fabric around the body, they would sprinkle the spices, the aloes and the myrrh, which was powdered. And then they would mix it with ointment and thus create a very sticky substance that would, that would congeal and would form literally a cast around the body. Jesus' head was wrapped separately, by the way. That's why I don't believe that the Shroud of Turin is real. Because his head was wrapped separately. He had a turban-like affair wrapping the top of his head and a napkin over his face and was tied in the back. And so they enter the tomb and they look in and there are the grave clothes right there on the shelf. But there's no body inside. It's like a collapsed cocoon. And John says, and the napkin that was, a, was on his head was in its place. The clothes weren't all, all over the tomb. Someone didn't come up and unwrap the body and throw the linen cloths all over. They were all in one place. We have anybody that's ever worn a wetsuit, done any surfing here? <laughs> if you'll imagine this. Trying to get out of those grave clothes was more difficult than getting out of a wetsuit without <laughs> unzipping it. But Jesus got out. Jesus got out. Why did the angel roll the stone away, by the way? To let Jesus out? No, to let us in. The empty grave clothes. They were left behind so that all could see. You could go to the tomb and you could see him. There they were, just like a cocoon, but there was no body inside. The sixth point of evidence is Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. All the people he appeared to. Now Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15, from verses 5 through 8, that he appeared to many people. In one particular occasion, he appeared, he appeared to over five hundred people at one time in one five hundred eyewitnesses Jesus appeared to lots of people after his resurrection he appeared to women he appeared to men he appeared to his disciples he appeared in different locations he appeared in the upper room he just was there 
He appeared to the two disciples walking down the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that in Luke's gospel? These guys are walking along talking, oh man, Jesus is dead, it's all over. And all of a sudden there's a third party walking with them. And Luke records he began to open their eyes to all that he had taught them from way back in the Old Testament. He appeared to the women in the garden. He appeared to his enemies. He appeared to those who didn't even believe in him. Do you remember Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? Saul out to destroy the church and kill Christians. Stamp out this heretical sect. And Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles because the risen Lord had appeared to him. And he testifies of it over and over and over. Jesus appeared even to his own half-brother James, who thought for sure he was nuts. And then James became the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Eyewitnesses. If you had 500 eyewitnesses, you took him into a courtroom of law, and each one shared their testimony just for six minutes, you would have over 50 hours of eyewitness testimony. Beloved, would that stand up in a court of law? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the last point of evidence, and I think this is very significant. The women saw him first. The women saw him first. You say, well, why, why is that so significant? Well, you have to understand something of the Jewish legal system in the background to see how significant this is. In the Jewish legal system, women did not have the right to give testimony in court. They were not valid witnesses. Do you remember when the women came and told the disciples he's risen, he's, they've seen him, and the, the, the disciples didn't believe them? That's an example of this reality. Now, if the resurrection accounts are fictitious, if they were made up, if they were mere fabrications by men, the women would never have been included in the story, certainly not as the very first witnesses. Do you see how significant it is that the women are listed as the first witnesses of his resurrection? It goes against everything that that culture knew. Men wouldn't write the accounts. These accounts are true. And so we believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, what are the implications for us? Because we can prove it. Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, talks about different people that he shared the gospel with, and he's talked to. And he said to them, if I could prove to you conclusively, categorically, that Christianity is true, would you believe it? And you know what the response was? No. No. There's so many people who are unwilling to set aside their own intellectual or philosophical bias to examine the facts. 
And eternity is at stake. You see? He's risen. We have factual evidence. We have concrete evidence. And, and, and much more evidence than just the seven points that I gave you. The gospel is trustworthy. It's trustworthy. Let's look at the implications now, quickly, for us, since Jesus has been raised. The first one is this. Jesus' resurrection validates his claims. He is who he says he is. He is Lord. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one else like him. He is the unique one. In John chapter 3, verse 16, when John writes that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the idea is he gave his only one-of-a-kind, unique son. There is no one else like Jesus. And his resurrection validates his claims. And everything else that he said, you can depend upon it. The second implication for us is because he rose, the debt of sin has been fully paid. God is satisfied. Justice has been fully served. And we are justified. Tremendous. Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, doctrinally, he says that Jesus was delivered for our sins to death, and he was raised to life for our justification. His resurrection was the God's stamp of approval. It's done. It's paid for. It's all finished. When someone is accused of a crime, when they're taken to court, when they're prosecuted, when they're found guilty, and the judge assigns the appropriate punishment to fit the crime. The person goes off to prison. They fulfill the sentence. Justice has been served. What next? They're free to go. We're free to go. Jesus has paid the price. He was resurrected. There was no more need. The penalty was already taken care of. The penalty for our sin. If Jesus has not been raised, we're still in our sin. There's been no forgiveness. But he has been raised, and the debt of sin is fully paid. Point three, the resurrection of Jesus Christ initiated the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, there is good news now to be preached. You remember in Romans, from chapter 1 through chapter 3, Paul sets out the bad news. And in chapter 3 of Romans, in verse 21, come these two great words. But now, but now, I have good news for you, he says. And because Jesus has been raised, we have good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been initiated. Point number four, the resurrection means that Jesus can be known today. He not only rose, 
but he is alive. And if he is alive, he is available and people can meet him and know him. Think about that. He's alive. These past two weeks as I've been reading and thinking and praying and studying, the this one implication of the resurrection has come home to me in a new and exciting and fresh way. Jesus is alive. He's alive. If you're sitting here this morning as an invited guest, a friend, a relative, and you don't know Jesus, He wants to know you. In fact, He already knows you. He wants you to know Him. And He's available. He's available. He can be known. The issue is, do you want to know him? Do you want to know him? The fifth point is the resurrection. And with the resurrection, Jesus is the first fruits, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He is the first fruits of a great crop to come. Paul says a similar thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, when he speaks of Jesus being the firstborn among many brothers. Beloved, Jesus is the firstborn of a whole new race. If you are a born-again Christian, not only is Jesus Lord, not only has he saved you, he is your big brother. And Paul says that God, through the Holy Spirit, is making us like Christ. We're part of a whole new race of humanity that's like Christ. And because Jesus was raised, he's the firstborn. He's the first fruit of a whole new crop, a whole new race of men and women. Isn't that awesome? The sixth point is that because of the, Je- the resurrection of Jesus, the power of death has been defeated. The power of death has been defeated. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The power of death has been defeated once for all. Now the unpleasantness of dying remains. But the fear of what lies beyond death's door is gone. I mean, I'm not real excited about dying. I don't know about you. It's not one of my favorite things to think about. I don't exactly look forward to getting some kind of disease, cancer or something that I go through with some kind of horrible, agonizing death. So the unpleasantness of death faces us all. The process of dying. But what lies beyond, I'm not afraid. I'm excited. I told my wife, I said, darling, if I go first, let me go. I don't want you calling the elders and anointing me with oil and praying and bringing me back. I'm going home. And she says, well, if that's your attitude, then the same thing for me. The power of death has been defeated. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. 
Since the children have flesh and blood, meaning us, he too, meaning Jesus, shared in our humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you fear death and you don't know Jesus, turn your life to him and he'll set you free from the fear of death. He'll set you free because he defeated it. The seventh point is the resurrection of Jesus gives us the victory. Those who trust him. Again, Paul writes to us in verse 57. He says, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He can and does change us. And he gives us power to live our lives and power over the evil inclinations and tendencies that rule our flesh. You can have power today. He changes you. He makes you a different person. He gives you a whole new life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pledge and the model of our own resurrection bodies on the last day. Paul, in, in this passage in Corinthians, verses 35 through 38, verses 42 through 43, and verse 49, describes the resurrection body. He says, this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. He talks about a resurrection body. You and I are going to get a brand new body. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21, Paul writes there this glorious thing. He says, when Jesus comes back, that he will change our lowly bodies and make them like his body. I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait. We're going to shed this old earth suit. Isn't that nice? We're going to get a new heaven suit that we can stand in the very presence of the Father and we won't come apart molecule by molecule because God did say, no man can see me and live. We need a new suit of clothes, a new body, a body that there'll no more pain, no more cancer, no more disease, no more flu virus. And his resurrection is the guarantee. Someone will say, will we be recognizable? Will we know each other? Yes, but we'll be glorified. Oh, yes. We'll come and say, wow, look at you. People have already come up to me this morning and said, you have a coat and tie on. Woo! Look at you. Get down. Amen. I can hardly wait for my new suit of clothes. 
And the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee and the model. We'll be like him. Point nine, the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of his return. It's the guarantee of his return. Luke writes in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, that he's going to bring all of human history to a climax. He's going to judge all men. Every hidden thing is going to be brought to light and judged as he sits on the throne. His resurrection is the guarantee of his return. I want to read to you one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I call it my good grief passage. I read it at funerals. Paul writes this, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And then he says this, And therefore encourage each other with these words. Jesus is coming back. And the resurrection is the guarantee. Oh, what a future we have in store. Because he was raised from the dead. And the last point, so significant. Until he comes back, in the meantime, the resurrection of Jesus is the impetus, is the spur, if you will, for our Christian action, for our Christian service, and for our Christian proclamation. Let me read to you from the last two verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my dear brothers, because of all of this that I've told you, Paul says, because of the resurrection, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Not sometimes. Not a little bit. He says, because Jesus has been raised, stand firm. Don't let anything move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. The resurrection gives us the impetus, the meaning, the reason, and it spurs us on for living a full Christian life. It doesn't mean that you have to become a pastor. It doesn't mean that you have to become a missionary. 
what it means that who you are and where you are and God has you planted. As a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as an employer, as an employee. That you serve the Lord faithfully. Always. Because Jesus has been raised. He goes on and he says, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We are accumulating, beloved, a great treasure in heaven. What we do here ought not to be in vain. Because Jesus has been raised. Pray with me. Father, we can only say thank you. We say thank you for Jesus, for the resurrection. We say thank you for this beautiful morning. For the sun which so shines, which is so symbolic of the sun shining in our heart. We love you this morning. We bless your name, Father. And Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice in our place that we might have this great hope of resurrection, that we might have this foundation to stand upon, to proclaim the truth. We praise your name this morning. You are worthy. You are Lord. We worship you and honor you with all of our heart. I want to take a moment now while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. There may be some this morning who you've come to a place in your life. You don't like yourself. You don't like what you see going on around you. You wish that there was something dependable and true you could count on that would not let you, let you down or fail you. For years and years and years in my own life growing up, I, I wanted to believe that there was something I could depend upon, something that would not let me down. And, and for years, I would put my trust in this person or that institution. And I found that shortly thereafter, I was let down severely. And yet down deep inside of me, there was a longing, there was a hope that there was one place I could go, one person who I could depend on, who would never let me down, who would always tell me the truth, who understood me, who could help me, who would accept me just like I am. Oh, how I long to be accepted. I found that one place. I found that one person, Jesus. Jesus. If you find yourself in a place today where you long for that acceptance, where you, you need forgiveness, you want a second chance, where you want to know that God is really alive and that He really cares for you and that He really can help you. More than that, He can transform your life. He offers that. He says, put your faith in my Son, Jesus. And I'll go to work on you. I'll transform you. And I'll give you a hope that will never fail. If you sit here this morning and 
you find yourself in that place and you desire things we've talked about, the assurance, the confidence, forgiveness, a new start, to be cleansed. Maybe you're tired of carrying around a load of guilt. You can be forgiven this morning. I'd like the privilege of leading you in a prayer. Anyone who would like to receive Jesus. It's real simple. You just say, Jesus, save me. I make a decision this morning to believe in you, that you died for me, that you were raised from the dead, and I turn my life over to you. I make you Lord. I get off the throne of my own life, and I enthrone you. You be in control. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, while everybody else's heads are bowed, everybody else's eyes are closed, I want you to signal me. I want to know who wants to pray. And just wave at me. Just raise your, just slip your hand up. Say, yes, I want to pray. I want to pray. Is there anybody at all this morning? Just go ahead and do that right now. Anybody? Just slip your hand up. Is that why you're doing it? Good. And back there? Good. Anybody else? Over here? The two of you together? Wonderful. Anybody else? Just slip your hand up. That's it, sir? Okay, I see you. In the back? Good. Right there? All right. Anybody else? Did I miss you? We're going to pray in just a minute here. Is that why you're raising? Okay, good. Okay. Anybody else? All right. I see those hands. What's more importantly, the Lord sees your hand. He's looking into your heart. He knows what's there. Pray this prayer. Real simple. Dear God, I don't understand all the theology. All I know is that I, I need help. I've heard this morning that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer. I've heard this morning that he died on a cross. He paid for my sins, all my grief. I've heard this morning that I can have a changed life, that you'll come in and change me, that you'll give me the hope of a new life, not only here on this earth, but forever with you. I want that. I want to rest in your arms. I want to come home. And so I ask you now to forgive me of my sins, my disobedience, my pride, my arrogance, my foolishness. Cleanse me of all my guilt. Come and take up residence and sit on the throne of my heart. You be Lord. I turn my life over to you this morning. I put my faith in Jesus. I'll follow him all the days of my life. Thank you, Father. And thank you that I can call you Father now. And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hallelujah.